0: Hi, everyone. This is Matt. As our regular podcast listeners know, Beyond Politics is a show that's both podcast and broadcast on radio on WKXL in New Hampshire. Last night, Beyond Politics was recognized by the New Hampshire Association of Broadcasters for an outstanding feature story. I never knew this about awards, but apparently the way a lot of them work is that you submit a single episode. That's the way this award works. And so we submitted This episode that you're listening to right now that you're about to hear and first aired on radio and was released more than a year ago, but we wanted to reissue it today. And I wanted to say that Paul Hodes and I are very grateful for the support we've received from WKXL. For people who don't know, may not be New Hampshire folks, WKXL is owned by a former U.S. Senator, Gordon Humphrey, He's a Republican. And as you've probably picked up on by now, Paul Hodes is a Democrat. He's a former Democratic U.S. congressman. Uh, I'm a Democrat as well. And we've really benefited from working with a radio station and a station owner who doesn't care about just promoting a partisan point of view or just wants to put out the most provocative clickbaity material on radio, but really wants shows that are thoughtful and informative and that elevate the conversation. Now, I can't say that we always achieve that 100% of the time, but that's what we strive for. And we feel very fortunate to work with partners who promote that. And we feel very fortunate to have listeners and subscribers who value that kind of show. And so thank you to all of you who are listening. And if you haven't subscribed yet, we really appreciate if you would. And if you take a moment to leave us a rating and a review anywhere, especially on Apple Podcasts, because they do drive a lot of the podcast market. But anywhere that you listen is great. And with that, here's the interview with former Chief Justice of the New Hampshire Supreme Court, John Broderick, and his very unique and powerful story. Welcome to Beyond Politics, broadcast on WKXL, available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson, our usual co-host, former Congressman Paul Hodes, is off today. John Broderick was a member of the New Hampshire Supreme Court from 1995 to 2010. During his last seven years, he served as chief justice. After stepping down, He became dean of the law school at the University of New Hampshire, and under his leadership, that law school rocketed up the national rankings. He also founded a school of law and public policy at the law school. So he's clearly led one of the more distinguished legal careers in America. But he's not here today to talk about our court system, legal education, or any legal cases per se. Since leaving those distinguished positions, Justice Broderick has been on a five-year journey Of discovery and leadership on mental health in america he's working to improve understanding and awareness of mental illness in order to get rid of some of the myths encourage discussion and treatment and begin to change the unfair and frankly shameful culture that surrounds mental health justice broderick welcome to beyond politics
1: thanks man it's wonderful to be here
0: it really is a pleasure to have you you've described yourself in your own words as being on a journey when it comes to mental health. What set you on to this journey?
1: Yes, I'm probably, or at least I thought I was, the least likely person in America, Matt, to be on this journey. I'm not sure that's true now. But what really set me on the journey was my own family's rather public story involving mental illness with one of my sons. And what was particularly tragic about it is that it probably was unnecessary, all of it. But sadly, it it became our family's history. The good news is we've come out of the tunnel and we've healed as a family. Much of the journey was due, I think, to my own ignorance about mental illness what it was, what it looked like, what to do about it if you found it. I'm a baby boomer, and baby boomers uh, didn't talk about mental illness growing up. Nobody talked about it back then. It was considered one of those really awkward conversations, and so we didn't become very schooled at what it was. And so when it came into my own family years later, I didn't see it. And my son, who was then 13, didn't know you had a mental health problem. And it makes sense when you think about it. How would you know that? It's just how you feel, how you see other people, how you react. And so he thought it was just him. It wasn't just him, but that's what he thought. And over the years that followed, he continued to succeed. He got a college degree, he got a master's degree. He's really smart. I mean, really smart. And uh, maybe the best person I know. He's a talented artist, a self-taught musician, handsome. But his wife was not connecting. And when we finally saw the problem that sent me on the journey, we saw alcohol. And we were told that that was his problem and that we needed to deal with it. It it was certainly a part of his problem, but as it turned out, he was self-medicating his underlying mental health problems, which as I said, we didn't see. And so I made mistakes. We made choices, they were well intended but wrong. And ultimately, Matt, it took my son, Masters Educated, Decent, fine, smart, to the state prison. It took me to the ICU at the Elliott Hospital in Manchester. And I was on the Supreme Court at the time. It got a lot of attention here in Nashville. My doctors actually went on the Today show when I was in the ICU to talk about how I was doing. And When I finally found out what had happened, I was in the hospital, and my wife and I were alone. I didn't know why I was in the hospital. And my wife told me what had happened and where my son was, and we just cried. It was the most hopeless feeling you could ever have in your life. And if I had any idea at the time, it would have been that alcohol, when it's abused, can take people to bad places. That's what I thought. And in any event, my son was sentenced us to the state prison. I hope you don't have that day in your life. I would have bet you anything I owned or might I ever do, that would never be my family. But it was on that morning. And when he got to the prison, my wife and I were visiting and we met with the head psychiatrist. My son was there. And he said to us, I really like your son. I've gotten to know him over the last month. I said, we love our son. He said, let me tell you what's going on. He said your son has really serious depression, panic attacks, the feeling you're about to die, and anxiety that are really off the charts. And so he was drinking drugs. That's what he was doing. He was self-medicating his mental illness. And when he said that to us, man, in that place on that day, I knew that we had failed him. I, I was, after all, a parent. I should have done something about mental illness embarrassed about it, but it it was harmful. My ignorance was harmful. And they said, we'll try to work with you, son, and see if we can turn him around. I thought all mental illness was hopeless, man. I don't feel that way now, but I did then. And they did work with him. And after about four or five months, he couldn't drink. He was seeing a counselor. He was taking prescribed medications. And he came out one night during visiting hours and gave us a big hug, as he always did. He said, Dad, I feel so different. I said, what do you mean different? He said, I can sleep through the night, Dad. I haven't been able to do that since I was a child. I I can focus, Dad. My mind's not racing. Teaching at the prison, I didn't know you could feel like this. And when he told us that, in that place, man, I knew that we had failed him. Should have known something. And he was paroled after three years. He's not had a drink for 15 years. The guy who was drinking pretty much every day. He said, Dad, I'm not that guy anymore. I'm not that type anymore. I don't feel like that guy. I to feel that. I could spend the night in the liquor store. I wouldn't have maybe but a Coca Cola. And when he was released, the channel lines on a camera crew up. That was a hard day, but a joyous day, all, all at the same time. And they put a camera in front of my face and they said, Do you have anything you want to say? I said, Actually, I do. We're really happy my son is leaving and joining real life again. But I want to tell you something else. My son's not a bad person who's suddenly a good person. He's always been a good person. He's now well. And those are very different things, by the way. And so I'm proud of him. I love him. And because I'm a baby boomer and because I was always a private person, I didn't do much. I just hope nobody knew about it, you know, as silly as that sounds. But people come up to me, Matt, at gas stations and grocery stores. I didn't know them. And they would say, hey, Judge, you're looking good. I knew what they meant. And I would say, thank you. And my son's doing much better. And they would always say, oh, I didn't want to ask about your son. I said, that's okay. I love my son. He had mental health problems. We didn't see it for what they were. And we saw alcohol doing better now. And all of those people, man, to a person would open up to me my mother, my father, my cousin, my brother, I heard about suicide attempts, I heard about suicides, heard about alcoholism, and I realized that our problem which seemed to be solitary to us, was widely shared. In any event, that's the backdrop, and that's what got me on this campaign to raise awareness, to improve public knowledge, and I've learned so much in my five-year journey across Northern New England, I really have.
0: First of all, thank you so much for sharing that with me and with our listeners. And I think your story highlights that this is an uncomfortable and often painful topic for people to talk about. And as people are listening to this on the radio or at home as part of a podcast, I think it's a a hard topic to engage with. One of the things that I find inspiring about your story is that you present that there is light at the end of the tunnel. As you say, you've come out the other end of the tunnel. I was thinking of maybe circling back to this at the end, but I don't want to hold out on our listeners. You say your son is doing much better. and So how is he doing? What is that light at the end of the tunnel like?
1: Well, he he came out of it, and he he was trapped with distress and anxiety, an alcohol while still succeeding. I mean, he, he jumped the hoops, you know, he got two degrees. He had friends, although fewer over time. And, and I am proud of him. And I've, I, I've tried to forgive myself Matt, for what I didn't know. There's no question today. If I knew what I know today back then, I would have made different choices. There's a, a little plaque, you might be able to see this, if this is one, but uh, it's the five most common times of mental illness. And my son said to me one day, Dad, if I'd seen that card, we've given out 450,000 of these men. I want one in every refrigerator in New England. He said, if I had seen this there when I was 15, I would have found myself on that record right card and I would have realized that it wasn't just me, that I had a health issue. And that's what I'm trying to have people realize. I have now visited Matt, I've driven about 90,000 miles in all seasons over the last five years. I've been to 300 high schools and middle schools. I've given my talk to 90,000 kids, grades six through 12. I've spoken to 30,000 adults. I have hugged thousands of kids in gyms and auditoriums kind of the most impersonal places you'd want to meet somebody but these kids who come up after i talk and open up and share the most personal aspects of their lives and it has so opened my eyes and one in five adolescents in the united states one in five twenty percent of all kids will have a mental health problem i didn't know that It's true for adults, too, by the way. Between 2007 and 2017, the rate of suicide for people from ages 10 to 24 increased 56%. We lose 20 veterans a day in America to suicide. I didn't realize until about two years ago that the leading cause of death among law enforcement and first responders, the leading cause of death related to their work is suicide. I didn't know that. It's a conversation this country has avoided for generations and we've got to start talking about it. I know that's true because kids talk to me. And I guarantee you, if your listeners were at my shoulder in those gyms and auditoriums could hear those kids, could see their wet eyes and their cracking voices, they would realize that we don't have a mental health system in America. It's shameful, man. And we never will, by the way, until people are willing to speak up. Well, and I think an
0: important ingredient in this entire equation is not just the awareness, but that light at the end of the tunnel, the idea that availing yourself of simple information, like what you showed on that card, and I wanna circle back around to that, you can identify problems and you can get help, you can get treatment, and there is another side of this there is a way to come out the other end and to, to do much better to feel much better and for families to do much better i think that's incredibly important i i don't want to jump the gun on the card but let's jump the gun on the card sure. our radio listeners can't see what you just held up would you just describe what that card is and maybe maybe they're they're listening and they want to go online and find the information sure. That you're making available here. So, what is this card and where
1: can people listening to this find it? Sure. The, the rack card that I'm holding is about eight inches by three and a half inches. As I said to you, I've given out 450,000 of these. I haven't dropped them from a helicopter, I've handed them out. I want them in every refrigerator, every workspace. The first step in this journey to success, to recovery, is knowledge. So we need to know what the common signs are. These signs which i give you are not diagnostic, but it's pretty hard to have a mental health or emotional health problem and not display one or more of these signs. The first one, Matt, is you're not feeling like yourself or someone you know or love just feeling like themselves. And we all know that. I don't mean you're having a bad day. We all have those. But I mean persistence, not feeling like yourself. Feeling agitated where you're not normally, or somebody you know a lot of is agitated, and it just goes on, and that can be a sign that something you are not seeing is actually happening. Uh, are you withdrawn? Are you not shy? Shy is not a mental health problem. Withdrawn is a mental health problem, or could be. My own son, by the way, was spending more and more time alone in his room drawing when he was 13 or 14. And he was, in fact, withdrawing. We thought he was drawing. And he was. I mean, he's very talented, but he was using his art to escape. And the world I'm from, there are always common sense explanations of almost everything, and a lot of it was incorrect. But the fourth sign is not caring for yourself, your personal hygiene changes. So either you or someone you know or love, they just don't tend to be taking care of themselves like they used to, and if that persists, could be a problem. And the last sign is a feeling of hopelessness. And my son experienced that. I'm not sure you would have called it that, but that's the sensation, which is the tunnel goes on endlessly. Nothing will change. And for a lot of his life there, he he believed that it was just him, that he was too shy or too weak. And so it turns into self-loathing. You think it's it's not you, it's what's bothering you. And he now realizes that, and I didn't even know it was bothering him. He was seemed like he had a pretty good life going other than the alcohol was disturbing. But that was later in the process. So I encourage people to, to learn these signs. They can go on changedirection.org, which is a national campaign, or they can go to REACT, R-E-A-C-T, uh, at Dartmouth Hitchcock on its website, I joined this campaign in May of 2016. We launched at the State House. man. I thought we'd have 20 people showing up on a Monday morning for a nonpartisan, non-political awareness campaign. I was worried about it, and we got there that morning, my wife and I, and there were over 400 people there. It was stunning, and I realized that day and and every day that followed that a lot of people and families are dealing with this issue. And they're too proud, too ashamed, too ignorant to react to it. And so dartmouth Hitchcock added the react component on the back of the record. What do you do if you find the signs? And the only mistake anyone can make, and I say this humbly, and I don't want to sound righteous because I have no reason to be righteous. I'm the last person to be righteous on no help. But I have learned this, that pretending you don't see it or not learning enough to find it or not responding to it. I've had kids tell me in gyms and auditoriums that they're ashamed of their mental health problems or their parents don't believe in mental illness. I mean, you don't have to believe in the law of gravity, but if you jump from a roof, you're gonna hit the ground. It's not a question whether you believe it, it's real. It's not a character flaw, it's not a deficiency, it's not a personal weakness. Anybody that we deal with every day could have a mental health problem, could be us. But we live in a world where everyone's putting forward their best face, and so people are reluctant to tell you. And we're awkward about approaching people we know or love and saying, you okay? You doing okay? You don't seem like yourself. It's that barrier that we're afraid to cross. I'm not afraid to cross it anymore, man. And people need to be willing to do that so we can build a mental health system. Treatment works, and treatment is possible.
0: And that's a remarkably important message. Again, so people can, can find the React pamphlet that you were just describing through the Dartmouth-Hitchcock website, also changedirection.org. That's really important information. And I, I'm glad that we've spent this first segment of the show really focused on, as you say, it's a journey. It's a, It's a journey in your own life, but also toward greater awareness of just how broad a scale this problem is. Justice Broderick, you alluded earlier to the fact that we are reaching epidemic levels of mental illness among the youngest cohort of Americans. I understand that mental disorders are the leading cause of disability in America and Canada for people between the ages of 15 to 44. Is epidemic really the right term to use when we talk about mental illness in younger Americans?
1: I think it is. I don't think it's an overstatement. But the beauty of what I've seen and what I've learned is that we can deal with it. I mean, it's not hopeless by any means. As I said before the break, one in five kids, one in five adults will have a mental illness. The most common, the most common our anxiety and depression. And I didn't realize until I got involved in this over the last five years that American businesses, Matt, lose upwards of 200 billion, with a B, dollars a year because of mental health and substance. And when I first saw that, I thought that can't be possible. How is that possible? Well, one of the ways we get to that staggering number is we train a lot of new workers, who might have mental health or substance problems, we spend money on that and they don't stick around. So we lose money on that. The biggest cause of absenteeism in the workplace is mental health, substance, either yours or someone you know or love in your family. And then the economists have come up with a phrase called presenteeism. So you're at work, you're present at work, but you might as well be home two and a quarter days a month because because of mental health, Yours are family members, you're not really focused. We lose productivity every day. I, I think from my travels, we need to start to focus not on world peace, not on fixing every mental health problem in America, but we need to start. And so I would start with those who are least in printout, the young people, the people I hug, the people who hug me. We don't have a mental health system that we can be proud of. And that's because of all of us, nobody to blame here, Matt, but all of us on this podcast are listening to it and we can act, but not until we're honest about it, not until we say, well, my family too, and I can't get help. In, in America today, if your 15-year-old son or daughter falls playing basketball or soccer in your yard or your driveway and breaks their leg, you call 911 and they'll send an ambulance to your house. If your 15-year-old has mental health problems, chronic mental health problem, who, who do you call? When do you get in? Who pays for it? I've spoken to parents who are paying between $1,400 and $2,000 a day for inpatient residential treatment for their son and daughter. On Valentine's Day, not this year, And COVID has obviously accelerated and exacerbated this problem. It didn't cause it, but it's made it worse. On Valentine's Day this year in New Hampshire, there were 51 kids and adolescents, essentially in lockdown with acute mental health problems in community hospitals, 51. And some of those kids had to wait hours to get to the appropriate place. Some waited days, a few waited weeks. That's immoral in my view. Kids can't change it. But you and I both know if we had 51 adults at risk of a massive heart attack in community hospitals who couldn't do that complex surgery, we wouldn't tolerate that for hours or days or weeks. We'd say get them to where they need to be treated. So we have a different standard for mental health. I don't know why that is. And, and it must have been OK with me, Matt, for decades because I wasn't doing this work. So I'm not proud of that. But I see it now. And we can fix it now. I have hugged kids as young as 11 years old who have told me they have tried to kill themselves or want to. I've hugged student athletes who have attempted suicide. I've had football players, high school linemen types, tell me with what I they couldn't share with their parents that they're depressed. I think this generation of young people is amazing. I love these kids. I really mean that. They are smarter than I was, less judgmental than I was, more open than I was. I love these kids. They don't get the credit they deserve. They will. But they also are dealing with problems that I didn't deal with. They have no memory of anything before 9-11. They have no memory of a life without a cell phone or an iPhone or a selfie or an Instagram. I've talked to high school kids, popular varsity athletes who have said to me, my parents won't let me make mistakes. I don't feel I had a childhood. I only sleep six hours a night. 80% of adolescents, by the way, sleep less than eight hours a night. 65% leave school, or leave for school one or more mornings a week with no food. And lack of sleep and lack of food are not success, but they can feel anxiety and depression. Kids today, from my experience, are over-structured, over-competing, overachieving. I spoke one day, Matt, before COVID, I was at a middle school in New Hampshire and having lunch with eight eighth grade girls. You can imagine how thrilled they were to have the old guy at the table. But they were nice to me nonetheless. And I knew the answer, but I said, hey, do you guys have iPhones? They looked at me like, oh my God, how old is this man? And they said, of course we have iPhones. And I said, how many hours a day are you on them? They could only use them 22 minutes in school. During lunch, by the way, I was interrupting their iPhone use, so you could imagine how thrilled they were with me. But anyway, I said, how many hours a day? And they were pretty honest, and they said five to seven hours. And one little girl didn't answer, and I said, how about you, you didn't say anything. So, well, I use mine an hour or maybe two a day. And I said, that's very good. So, well, not really, because if I'm on there more than that, I get very depressed and the literature would show you that. I also said to them, this drew the best response. I said, I understand your generation feels stressed. These are eighth graders, man. Is that true? And they all started of beaming. me, I could see the braces. They, they thought I was pretty hip at that point. They said, oh, we're so stressed. And I said, really, why is that? So the little girl next to me who was described as the best athlete boy or girl in the school, she said, I'll tell you why we're stressed. I said, "Why is that?" She said, "We're always trying to achieve the next thing, so we'll be eligible for the thing after that." That was not my eighth grade life. I was in that auditorium for six lunch periods. These are kids six through twelve, uh, six through eighth grade. And I was the oldest person there, obviously. I didn't get a chance to sit down, man, until the fifth lunch period began because kids would come up and open and share with me. I wish people could see that, experience it, and know that much of what's bothering these kids, I believe, is cultural and social. And I'm not saying let's go back to the good old days because some of those weren't so good, but on the social, emotional health level, they were pretty good. It was in the air.
0: You're pointing out something really interesting in terms of on the one hand, we are seeing epidemic levels of mental distress, mental health issues in our youngest Americans. And you're relating, you know, look, the plural of anecdote is data and you have plenty here to suggest that these young people are feeling anxiety, depression, stress, and they're distressed by their cultural and social surroundings. And you also told a reporter in 2019 that every illness from the neck down is treated with empathy, respect, and understanding. Mental illness needs what you called a magic Johnson moment, referring, I'm sure, to that moment that culturally those of us of a certain age all remember when he announced that he had AIDS, that he had HIV. He did not, in fact, have full-blown AIDS. And here he is now, 30 years later, seemingly the picture of health. But it was a cultural touchstone for so many of us in terms of our awareness of that disease. And I wonder if perhaps we're in the middle of another cultural touchstone moment, perhaps a Magic Johnson moment, with the unfolding story, as we record this now, of Simone Biles, the Olympic athlete who has stepped away from competition at the Olympics because of what she describes as mental health concerns. Now, some of it may be, look, you're vaulting yourself and twisting in the air and you could land on your neck if you don't have spatial awareness. And if there's something going on with her, it it may partly be a safety issue. Regardless, there's just a very interesting difference in how that story is being perceived publicly between older commentators who say, "Ah, aren't you kind of letting your team down? And younger commentators who are coming out of the woodwork online and saying, good for you. That's the right focus to have. So I guess my question is, do you think that perhaps we're having a little bit of that Magic Johnson moment? And do you think that these younger generations who you're interacting with all the time view this issue differently? They don't, they don't see the same level of stigma. They're they're more open to treating mental illness more on a par with the way we treat physical illness.
1: They are now I love this generation. I they will change it but they won't get to do that for years to come. But they want to change it. And I'm trying to hasten the change. I'm trying to have the conversation happen now, not 20 years from now. I think, by the way, if mental illness had a blood test, a cast, or an MRI, we would have solved this problem years ago. There are still people out there, man, who think, oh, come on, it's just you. Snap out of it. What are you depressed about? You have nothing to worry about. They don't understand it. We would not say to somebody with diagnosed diabetes, oh, snap out of it. Let's go shopping. Let's play golf. But we say those things to people with mental health problems. About a year ago, as the pandemic was starting, I wrote Not Bed Piece, and, and it was entitled The Pandemic and Mental Health Opportunity Knocks. And by that, I meant a lot of people who were not affected by mental health problems, especially anxiety and depression are now experiencing them, or their family members are. So it doesn't seem like the other anymore. It's like, oh, this could happen to us. It is happening to us. Uh, Simone Biles is an amazing young woman, whatever the mental health diagnosis turns out to be. To be where she was on top of the world, she was painfully honest about it. The young tennis player, Osaka is her last name, uh, she couldn't, play in the French Open because she didn't want to do press conferences. She had won a Grand Slam tournament. It's one of the best tennis players on earth. And she was criticized for that. And then she was fined for that, $15,000. And she dropped out of the French Open and said, I've been depressed. I've had problems. The culture is so different from mental health. If she said, I have breast cancer, people would have been flocking to her aid. When I was a child, not to give away my advanced age, i at... But when I was a child, I had a friend of mine whose mother was ill. I didn't know what was wrong. I was about 10, 12. And I said to my mother one day in the kitchen, we were alone. I said, Mom, what, what's wrong with Jimmy's mother? We were alone in the kitchen. My mother bent over and whispered to me that Jimmy's mother had cancer. She whispered. There were a lot of people in my childhood who didn't have that courage. They would say, he or she has the see word you didn't tell your neighbor, your friends, your employer. Maybe you could catch it if you breathe the same air. It was the same way with age, But everyone in America, i venture to say everyone in America, if you said, what's the color for breast cancer awareness, they would say pink. If you say to people, what's the color for mental health, they would say, it has a color. That's what I'm talking about. The Patriots wear pink shoes, the Red Sox swing pink bats. There are more people affected every year by mental health and cancer. It doesn't mean what we're doing in cancer is right. We should all be proud of what we've done. 300,000 women last year. It's not only women, but mostly women. 300,000 women had breast cancer diagnosis. Most of those people do well now. There's a protocol. They get in quickly. We have great treatment. But if you're diagnosed with mental illness, good luck. We don't have a system now. And we never will until we insist on it. Let's talk about the fact that we don't have a mental health system in
0: America. One of the things that brought us to this episode today was a recent episode that I did with my old colleague and friend, Doug Dunbar, who was the secretary of state of the state of Maine. Interestingly, he got about as far in his field as one can get. You got about as far in your field of law as one can get. And Yet, you know, your stories kind of intersect in this odd way. I mean, he found himself afflicted by mental illness, by anxiety, depression. He found himself self-medicating with alcohol, and then he found himself in jail. And one of the insights he developed was that it wasn't just him, it was everyone he encountered as part of the system had an underlying mental health disorder that was frequently leading them to a substance abuse disorder. And you and I talked offline about the fact that we use our prison and jail system in America as a de facto mental health system. So how much has our prison and jail system taken that role of being the mental health system in America? And what would a real mental health system in America look like?
1: Let me say, I'm not critical of the prison and concrete on that topic. Because they saved my family's future. Having said that, they are grossly understaffed and underfunded. They have become the default mental health system in the United States. Right now, today, Matt, as we speak, 65% of the women in the prison in concrete, 65% have a diagnosable mental health problem. They didn't develop it the day after they arrived, rather, the they brought it with them. It's about 45% for the men in the men's prison. The national average is around 20%. So it's much higher. And so that's where people go to get help. If we had off ramps, if we actually knew what mental health was, and we could start treating people at a young age, we could save a lot of people from that travel of the state prison system or to the county jails. There's a lot of mental health in those places. And it's not a coincidence that they end up there. And I'm not saying it justifies their conduct. But it truly explains a lot of it. Our ignorance has caused a lot of this. Let me give you a couple of stats, which which always drew my attention. We have 1.4 million lawyers in the United States. Now I'm a lawyer, so I think that might be enough, but I'm not quite sure. But we have 1.4 million lawyers. We have 675,000 CPAs. Hopefully that's enough. And we have 28,000 psychiatrists. That's it in a nation of 333 million people. We don't have enough psychiatrists, but mostly we also don't have enough psychiatric nurse practitioners, psychiatric social workers, mental health counselors, and the reason we don't, Matt, is we don't incentivize people to go into those fields. Whatever the image people have of psychiatrists, which is a big office on Park Avenue, that's not reality. Psychiatrists are among the lowest paid members of the medical profession. I didn't know that either. People who work in the mental health field are underpaid and overstressed themselves. If we were willing to attract them, we'd get more. I also didn't realize that we reimburse, the reimbursement rates, insurance reimbursement rates to psychiatrists, for example, are lower as a percentage than they would be to your orthopedists or your because that bias that maybe it's not really a medical problem, but we have to do something. So we need to start to deal with that. We need to start to your mental health visits pay for. You know, we do allegedly have parity equality between mental health, and physical health under the Affordable Care Act. I'm a big champion of the Affordable Care Act, by the way. But the truth is, we don't have parity. I remember one day talking to Senator Joe, I mean, Congressman Joe Kennedy of Massachusetts, I met with him in his office, thanks to Andy Custer, And he loved what I was doing. And he said, John, I'm working on parity. I'm trying to get parity. He said, I know we have a federal law that says it. Well, we don't have parity, John. Insurance companies push back all the time. So if we want to have a mental health system, we all need to ask the question, why don't we? And then we have to put pressure on the policymakers to create it. They didn't create a system for breast cancer in 1952 because a woman was diagnosed with it. They created it because people finally said, This is not right. The reason we did it with AIDS is we finally lost our bias and our prejudice and realized it's a health problem. Mental health is a health problem. It's nothing beyond that. But it's shameful, beyond shameful now, that we can't offer the treatment as timely and widely as we know we should. And I know from talking to psychiatrists in the field, one of which is Will Torrey, who's the head of psychiatry at Dartmouth, said, John, treatment works so well. It's not like we're clueless. We just don't have offerings and we don't have facilities, and we don't have an insurance infrastructure, and we never will if we're relying only on those who are suffering. The rest of us need to out. That's what I'm trying to do. In the final couple of minutes, we
0: have. I have a. I have a question that you could probably talk about for an hour. So I'm going to unfairly ask it of you. I mentioned earlier you occupied one of the most senior legal positions in America, and I want to ask about how your journey and your work on mental health since leaving the court has affected your thinking about the legal system, about punishment, about rehabilitation, and about the role of criminal law and the courts. Partly which function to protect people from others who might be violent. In fact, that's one of the key aspects of our criminal justice system. Imprisonment is is supposed to be in part about punishment and protection, but there's also rehabilitation. There's also, in the case of mental illness, treatment. So from a legal standpoint, from the standpoint of the courts and our criminal justice system, how do you think about that? And has your thinking changed since you were on the court?
1: Well, when I was on the court, Matt, we started and expanded mental health courts in New Hampshire for nonviolent offenders whose offense could largely be explained because of mental illness. And so we tried to keep those people out of the justice system in terms of incarceration. They were in the justice system. We were trying to get them. Just from the numbers I gave you at the state prison, men and women prison, my guess is most of those people didn't get mental health treatment, mental health counseling. And so we'll pay to lock you up, right? But we won't pay proactively to help you. And we need to. And we could transform it. My goal would be as a member of the judicial branch to have fewer criminal defendants in front of me, not because we're ignoring crimes, but crimes aren't happening. And a lot of criminal activity can be explained through mental illness. Drugs being one of them. I'm not talking about drug dealers. I'm talking about drug use. There are a lot of things we could be doing Uh, to change it. And we have to be bold enough to ask the tough question, which is, why is it like this? And so I want to start early. One of the suggestions I I have is we should do universal mental health in pediatrician's offices and health offices around the country, not to diagnose people when they're eight years old, but to start to see if there are any clinical signs. And there are age-appropriate questions that can be asked. And then to have a system. In 1988-89, 1988-89, New Hampshire's community mental health system, there were 10 mental health centers. We were ranked number one in the country. Because when we entered out all the mental hospitals, we said community mental health will do the trick. And we were great. We're now ranked about 19th or 20th. So we're better than 30 other states. But when you have been number one, nobody wants to come for the banner that says we're now number 19. We need to do more, man. John Broderick, former Chief
0: Justice of the New Hampshire Supreme Court, and an advocate who's been on a personal and a public journey to try to address mental illness and mental health and mental wellness in America. Thank you so much for joining us on Beyond Politics.
1: My pleasure, Matt. Thank you.